Delighted to welcome Subhashish back to Network Capital. He's written a fantastic new book. Some of you may be aware we hosted uh, him on Network Capital to discuss his uh, wide-ranging experiences in investing, consulting, and now building a business. So today's discussion will be focused a bit more about his book and what prompted him to write it. So let's start from the beginning, Subhashish. You're a busy guy. Why did you write the book? Uh, thanks, Gush, uh, for having me here. In many ways, my journey in public writing began with Network Capital uh, immediately after uh, the session that you mentioned, and I wrote something, and people seemed interested in hearing what I had to say. So that, again, led to a snowball effect, which led to this book. So again, this feels like homecoming, and thank you so much for catalyzing that journey. To your question of what led to this book, uh, I've always been someone who's aspired uh, to be a writer. I've aspired to tell stories. I've just never found the right story to tell. Uh, I've always, I've, I've struggled with genre. I tried to write poetry. I tried to write uh, fiction, etc. It's only in the recent years that I think a lot of uh, factors came together, which made me feel like this is the story that I want to tell. This is the narrative that I want to spread out there in the world. Uh, and at, in parallel, as I was gaining some traction in terms of writing on LinkedIn, this just felt like the right moment. Uh, so I think a lot of things added up at the same time, and that's what led to this book. Um, connect your career with the book, with the topic of the book. So my career, just to give a background to those who might be listening in for the first time, um, has been in management consulting. So I've worked with McKinsey for a couple of years where I um, worked on projects across sectors, but I did spend a substantial amount of time on one of the projects, which is about writing a report as part of McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, that was in that sense, my introduction to uh, public policy. Uh, we worked with many stalwarts, uh, including Nobel laureates. We uh, had uh, advisors who'd worked at the RBI and other things. And I think that uh, was a defining few months of my life where uh, really understood that I had something to contribute even as a relatively young person. Otherwise, the image one has of public policy uh, is white-haired bureaucrats and professors sitting in a room. And I think that experience made me feel like I had a voice. I went to Oxford, spent a couple of years there, and then when I came back, I worked in impact investing for about five years. Uh, what I did at Omidyar Network, which was where I worked, was to work at the intersection of social impact and philanthropic capital. So we deployed both for-profit and not-for-profit dollars in pursuit of certain social objectives. And the, the area that I was handling was one around digital identity and data rights. That's where I got involved in with a lot of India leading intellectuals in these areas. So people working at the biggest think tanks or smaller think tanks, new voices, old voices, etc. Um, and I really benefited from the world. I think I started looking at India very differently. But I did not think that the conversation yet was as mainstream. I didn't think everyone was talking about India in the same way. And that's where I kind of uh, felt like this is... Um, this is a conversation I want to catalyze. This is something that I want to write about. I want to take all that I learned as part of my job uh, and really trans and kind of merge it with my passion and translate it to do something that's more engaging, that's more readable, etc. Um, so in that sense, my writing career has been 
um, as you as your book's title would put it, has been a side hustle. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, but I think in some many kind of fundamental ways, it's been linked to uh, linked to what I've been doing. Now I'm at a startup, so if you think of it, has almost nothing to do with my writing career, has nothing to do with public policy, etc. Uh, but I think still, you know, kind of um, the experiences you have, even as a startup operator working within the kind of structures of government that we have uh, still have a lot to tell you about uh, about the exp- our lived experiences in india so it's it's almost been in parallel and uh, and a kind of side hustle but uh, but i guess that's the experience many of us have yeah i mean i agree with everything that you said with a slight difference on writing i feel that even as a startup operator your writing helps your company big time and you know one of the things that i advance in my book is that writing is one of the most scalable product that any person can uh, can do today in order to evangelize his or her message or share what uh, the person is up to. And I think it also helps to gain clarity about why one is doing what one is doing. And, you know, for some people, it also leads to income. So some of the writers, like one person I talk about in my book, used to work at Microsoft, then quit to write a newsletter on tech. Now earns millions of dollars simply writing. So keep writing. You never know uh, how your company or your future companies uh, might benefit from it. For sure. And I mean, I attended uh, one of the courses by Amit Varma about his writing courses. And this is exactly what he says. I think a clear being a clear thinker makes you a clear writer. But more importantly, right. vice versa, being a clear writer, forcing yourself to be a clear writer makes you a clearer thinker. Uh, so yeah. I do think writing has all of those um, ancillary benefits that we probably don't speak as much about. Right. Um, and, you know, I spoke about writing as a product. That, that's not how I think uh, of writing at all. I'm a son of a poet, and I, I think of writing as an art form. But since many of some of our listeners, at least, are more business-oriented, so I thought I'll speak that mm-hmm. language to encourage other people to write. Um, but coming back to the topic of the book, this is not exactly related to what you do. It's somewhat related to stuff that you got interested in while you were at Omidyar. Talk about the origin. How did you start thinking of the structure of the book and what does it look like? Got it. So the first thing I locked down about the book was the title. Uh, I did not know what the structure would look like, uh, but I do think, and this is, I think about two or three winters ago when I think our country uh, was going through a politically dynamic situation. And I think a lot of young people were getting engaged in the political process by you, you'd remember those sites of people reading out the preamble in groups and that kind of stuff. And that was the uh, extremely kind of volatile political environment in which I, start, I also had kind of um, disagreements with friends, families, etc., cetera, uh, about a lot of political things. And that's when I realized that even though we are, one might argue, one of the most politically conscious generations uh, in decades, I don't think we talk enough. And there are statistics around this which say that, look, political consciousness has risen by multiples. It it says that the amount of dissatisfaction with the direction India is taking has also been rising. Uh, I think people have a voice on many of these political issues, but the reason they don't speak about it is because there's a certain amount of self-censorship that happens, uh, that people feel that you know, I'm just going to get into needless arguments with family and friends. Why should I speak about it? Uh, people feel like if they have disagreeable views that they should not voice it. Otherwise, they will, in that mm. sense, face social ostracism. And that's when I said, look, I think many of us across the left and the right can agree that something's not right. Can we kind of mm. draw that common agenda? And that's where 
I came up with the book which says caged tiger how too much government is holding Indians back. Hmm. I don't think I think people both on the left and the right at least with some aspects of that statement would agree. So that's where the writing process started which was the um, the title itself. Once I came up with the title I said let me think about what are the different lives that we as Indians live. We live hmm. lives as economic agents, we run businesses or we are employed by a business, uh, we participate in markets etc. So we have economic lives. We have cultural lives. We go watch movies. Uh, we eat. Uh, we dine in a certain way. So that's our cultural life. We have social lives. We interact in different ways, both obviously physically in terms of uh, what we believe and what we speak, but also obviously now on social media and on the internet, where we're expressing our points all the, uh, all the time. So now these are three or in fact more aspects of our lives. And then I went into what are the ways that the government is intervening in these lives? And that's basically how the book is structured. It says, okay, you as an Indian have an economic life. You are participating in markets. Now let's go back and look at how is government intervening in these markets and how impact is it having on you? And how can we change that for the better? So the, the book in that sense is very much structured, each chapter being one aspect of an Indian's life. Uh, and then going into how is the government intervening? Is it good or for bad? And how can we really improve things? Yeah. And then obviously I wanted to kind of end with an overarching narrative of where are we heading as societies uh, because that's something that obviously many people have spoken about uh, Yuval Harari being one of them and then uh, I wanted to speak about that and saying that uh, given the lens that I have applied in all of these chapters which is about the institutions of government which are invisible to us but we are living in our everyday lives how are those going to change with technology with the kind of geopolitics that we live in etc so that's kind of the last few chapters of the book as well. I was particularly interested in the segment about trust and uh, how you see trust manifesting in India differently. Um, when I look at global data, trust in institutions is dropping, has consistently been dropping. People don't trust big banks, big religion, big government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in India, it's slightly different. And I thought your take on trust was uh, insightful. So I'd love for you to tell us what you, uh, what you think of it. I do think so. As we, as I started digging into the data, it's uh, rather interesting that when we look at the the top of uh, our government institutions, be the Supreme Court, be it uh, the Prime Minister, the President, uh, even kind of the top political leaders of the country, uh, be it the armed forces, I think there's an extremely high amount of trust. So I think we as average Indians really trust our institutions much higher than other countries do. And I think there's good reason for that, because if you look at the wider span of Indian history and you look at the neighborhood we are in, uh, our institutions have delivered in many ways that our cousins who got independence at the same time do not have. Yet, when it comes to our day-to-day -day lived experience, when we are talking about um, the bureaucrats that we might need to go to for a document or for the police officer who might be on our street, many people say, I mean, the Supreme Court, in fact, made this observation that sometimes people are more afraid of going to the police station and most afraid of the police. Um, so I think there's that dichotomy where we trust the top of our institutions, but the vast majority that we interact with on a daily basis, we are extremely cynical about. Um, and that's the dichotomy that I was, I am, I do try to resolve through this book, which is to say that I think there is something to be said about our cultural aspects, our, uh, our view of nationhood, of, uh, of be belonging to a particular community that makes us trust in the kind of 
the figureheads of that community. Uh, but on a day-to-day basis, I think our lived experience is different. And the question was, how can we try to reconcile those? Hmm. And uh, how can we try and reconcile those? How? Uh, what are some things that uh, young India can do uh, in order to understand this uh, this different way in which trust manifests in the country? I think the most important thing for us to do is honestly to just talk. Uh, and I think we underestimate the power of us just expressing our point of view. Hmm. Uh, I think we are at the end of the day uh, a democracy and i think to that extent us even one might think hey what does it even achieve if i just you know repost something or just participate mm-hmm. in a hashtag etc but there have been major movements and major milestones that have been uh, that have happened and that have taken place because people participated and believe that they had a voice um, institutions are everywhere everything we do every day is an institution it's part of an institution you mm-hmm. and i are on this recording on zoom uh, I think there is uh, a lot of contentious topics being discussed right now about how do we regulate the internet? Should there be encryption? Should the government have backdoors? Uh, our WhatsApp chat should be encrypted. Should the government have access to that to prevent crime or not? So every interaction that we have as citizens is moderated by some government institution. I think individuals, as a starting point, to just talk about these issues. Uh, Remember that about seven or eight years back, uh, Facebook wanted to come into India with its kind of free basics program. And I think people started a very successful social media campaign called the Save the Internet campaign, uh, where they got to write to their MPs, they kind of tweeted about it, they wrote about it, etc. And then finally, that did not go ahead. So I think people need to get a voice that we don't need to look back too far out in history. There was obviously the Jan Lokpal movement uh, of Anna Hazare that happened in a certain way. Uh, on more tactical things, there were the uh, there were the kind of candlelight protests, etc., that uh, were happened in the Jessica Lal case. So I think we have lots of these moments. So even even the greatest of despondency, where you might think as a young citizen that hey, look, I don't have a voice and I don't even want to participate because this is too much for mm. me. I think there's something, some little thing that all of us can do. And I think the importance of conversations is underestimated because people feel one in a billion, do I really make a difference? And uh, because sometimes the the quantum seems insignificant, people uh, either don't engage at all or engage with the intent of provocation. And in the book, you suggest different ways in which uh, that expression can take place. Do you want to tell us about that? And are there interesting examples from other parts of the world where... Uh, the conversation is slightly more nuanced. So I think um, there is this uh, good book called How Democracies Die, uh, which I think should be essential reading for everyone, uh, because it does say that um, at some levels, uh, you know, no matter how much your disagreements are, you have to be able to um, share a vocabulary of respect for the other side, and you have to be able to not be locked in a kind of no holds barred kind of battle. And that is what preserves democracy. So even though, uh, for example, uh, the president of the US vis-a-vis the Congress might be able to do many other things, they don't do that because they kind of preserve the sanctity. I think a microcosm of a similar thing is very uh, applicable to what we as citizens do, which is, um, I do think the starting point here is to be respectful. Uh, And I do think that is uh, something that we don't always do, both on the left and the right of the political spectrum. And I think uh, what we should do is that 
We need to have kind of that respectable conversation. We need to talk about structures and institutions a lot more than we talk about personalities. Uh, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, uh, at some point, our current political leaders won't be there and the new generation will replace them. But the problems mm -hmm. that our institutions have will uh, continue to stay with us. Um, as far as other parts of uh, the, the world are concerned, unfortunately, there are these global forces uh, precipitated by social media that are leading to a breakdown in the kind of conversation and the echo chambers that are emerging. If you look at political polarization in the US, there's enough and more data which says that now we are more politicized and we are more polarized than we ever were. The number of times a Republican supports a Democrat-led uh, bill is now at an all-time low. And I do yeah. think we yeah, are also, we probably don't have as much data, but I think we are becoming more and more polarized. I do think people are uh, stopping speaking to friends. Uh, are I've seen on uh, people that send me screenshots on dating websites saying that, hey, if you don't believe in this ideology, let's not talk further, right? And I think- uh, I believe divorces have also happened. Uh, because of that. Yeah. And I think uh, it is important for us to really confront that kind of polarization head on uh, by talk by trying to at least build some sliver of a common agenda that we share across uh, different kinds of political shades. Talk about institutions. Um, at the pace at which technology is moving, one way of uh, looking at institutions that they are so redundant. They wake up five years after the technology has already shaped and changed society. Um, but the other view is that institutions really matter. So my question is, do you think they matter? If yes, why? And is there, again, something particular about Indian institutions? Got it. So firstly, I think what we're talking about are formal institutions, because obviously informal institutions exist everywhere. So let's kind yeah. of narrow the scope of that question to uh, formal institutions. And you're absolutely right, especially when it comes to technology. Uh, these institutions lag by a mile. Uh, I think by the time we really woke up to the downsides of social media, I remember like back in uh, maybe back in like the early 2010s when we were talking Facebook was going to be like at the fountainhead of the Arab Spring and it was like the great mm. savior of democracy. And that wasn't a long time back. That was just 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and from there to go to social media being the biggest threat to democracy, uh, the pendulum has really swung a lot. And I think that talks about how our collective collective ability to think about some of these things, forget even institutions. Our imagination is lags behind technology a lot more. Um, but here is what I would say, that even any kind of technology that exists does exist in a regulatory paradigm of some nature. Um, today, for example, we have Ola and Uber, which are obviously technologies as well, but they exist in a certain paradigm of what labor laws are, right? I mean, they are the labor laws may be applicable to them if they take a certain structure, et cetera, and they take a certain structure based on all of that. So I do think what we have to think about is not just the institutions, but the process that is underlying the institutions, right. which means uh, that if I now have a new set of companies come, obviously institutions, policies, processes keep changing, right? Uh, so how do we think about um, being able to change them at a regular frequency and what is the process that we follow? Who has a voice when these get changed? Uh, how are citizens able to participate in these processes? Um, and I think those are kind of the questions that we need to ask in order to really make our, our institutions a lot more responsive, especially when you think about the uh, pace of change in, in the technological sphere. Right. What was the uh, research methodology you followed for the book? Because your day job, again, is something else. And at Omedia, you were an investor, before that, a consultant. 
So there's something, you know, it's not maybe something you spent uh, all your working hours on. Got it. So the, I think, uh, and I think this would be true in your case as well, Oscar, which is uh, the seeds of an, a writer in you are born far before you really pick up the pen or now the keyboard and start writing, right? I think it's mm. your entire journey of your life that leads you up to that moment. In your case, obviously, the experience of setting up Network Capital was what's led to both, I would presume, has led to both your books. And for right. me as well, it was over the decades, the experience of speaking to some of what I might argue are the smartest minds in India on these issues. Uh, I had the vantage point at Omidyar because we were a funder and I kind of had funded a bunch of their institutions uh, that I had some sort of privileged access to them or at least some access to them. I was in the right rooms at the right time when they were talking about these big questions of nation building. Um, and more importantly, um, just reading, uh, reading uh, a lot of this and enjoying that process. And uh, um, I mean, I, I just have always read a lot of these books on these topics. And as they say in India, that there are more writers than readers. So I think if you're a good reader, you probably uh, are in a, in, a, in a more exclusive <laughs> group. And that's what in that sense was the, the research methodology was a lot of the papers, a lot of the content that these leading thinkers were putting out, both as kind of research papers, as well as books that they were printing. Uh, and at that some point in life, I kind of always thought of my role as almost a bridge builder, mm. saying that, look, I inhabit these multiple worlds, which is one, the policy world, the investing world, etc. And there's a bridge that I could possibly be in connecting these worlds. And this book is that connection in the sense it's uh, based on a lot of very hardcore research on regulatory governance, based on uh, decades of work that was done, including, for example, the Financial Services Regulatory Reforms Commission uh, and a lot of the work that came out. So it's, it's based on extremely hardcore academic work, but at the same time, I've written it in a way that I would write a LinkedIn post uh, with the kind of same, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not filled with jargon, it's easy to understand, et cetera, et cetera. So the research methodology in that sense is primarily secondary research, but uh, then trans the more difficult part was translating that into a vocabulary that is accessible to people. Right. And I think that your uh, experience as an investor, uh, you know, betting on some of these institution builders uh, does give you a unique vantage point to, to explore the topic. At least while going through the book, I found that to be the most insightful segments where you've drawn upon your own experience as a young person, a young person doing interesting things, investing and so forth. I would think so, right? I, I happened to be, I happened to find myself in a very unique spot in the Indian ecosystem, uh, where as a young person, I was part of an institution that was funding amazing entrepreneurs and researchers and working very closely with government on a whole bunch of things. So I don't think too many people at my age would experience that width of experiences in the pub in the policy or uh, kind of uh, research spaces I did and I think that was part of the reason why I said look I need to uh, get this story out there right um who should read this book look I think um people who will enjoy the book the most are people who at some level keep themselves abreast of what's happening in the country and have some thirst for knowing a little bit more about it than just the top headlines. What I mean by that is, uh, if you're, for example, someone who's led, read about the farm protests, uh, but you want to find out more about, hey, what was the background? Uh, what is the history? What's the context? How can things be different? Or if you're someone who read about um, uh, the 
or cared about, I would say, the, the lockdown that we saw during COVID and said, hey, you know, uh, why did we have this version of the lockdown and why was there a different yardstick that was used, for example, when the protests happen and you kind of hmm. the, comes charging down? Why were the same yardsticks not used? If you're someone who reads things, is aware of it and wants to fi- find out more, I think that would be the ideal person for to read this book. You know, um, I'm glad it's not a how-to book. Because, you know, the you encourage readers to think about important questions and then nudge them to see the ways you can address them. Um, I don't want to do the consulting thing of three takeaways or anything of that sort, but just guide us into some of the important questions you nudge the reader towards and what are some mental models you suggest so that the reader can explore that topic. Got it. So in terms of... Um... The questions I nudge the readers towards is firstly thinking about just thinking thinking harder about structures and processes uh, of, of everything that we see, or nudging them to think one level deeper. And I think this is uh, now that you mentioned consulting. I will say that in consulting, there's the five layers of why that you ask. You just keep thinking of something and keep asking why five times. Uh, and you mm-hmm. usually get to the truth uh, is what consultants like to believe. And I think that's the mental model that I'm trying to encourage my readers in this book is to ask why five times. Uh, if you say that there are farm protests, why are there farmer protests? Because the government brought in laws. Why did the government bring in laws? Uh, and then kind of just take that structure of thinking. So I think I'm trying to get my readers to move from the headlines to the whys of some of these things that are happening. Um, so, so that is kind of one of the th- uh, one of the nudges that I have in the book. The second nudge that I have for uh, readers in my book is really part not um, not turning away from the complexity of some of these issues. Um, when I first wrote this book and when I started approaching publishers, agents, etc., a lot of people did come back and say, "Look, this is a serious topic, uh, mm. and you're young to write it." And that's the notion that I would like all of us collectively as a generation of and Gen Z and millennials to really challenge. Uh, because I don't think data uh, bears it out. I do think, as I said, we are one of the most politically conscious generations. And I think that's the mental model shift that I'm uh, encouraging my readers in this book to do. Uh, I think there are ways to talk about politics that aren't politicized in that sense. Mm. Um, and for me, uh, for um, in terms of um, mental models that I have myself used, I think more than mental models, it's um, a certain big, a bit of respect for that kind of democratic process that even um, you kind of approach things with openness and curiosity rather than judgment. Uh, so of course, I have friends whose political views are very different from mine. Uh, and instead of judging them uh, because of the strength of my political views, but approaching it with curiosity and finding common ground. Uh, and I think that's that's a skill that's obviously helped me a lot in my career and corporate life, but I do think it's a skill that we all can learn uh, as citizens of the country as well. Yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, to me, again, the way you explored the 5Y framework, you know, not directly, but uh, I think once the reader goes through some of the examples presented, I think he or she will be able to, you know, go deeper. Um, for me, when I was reading some of these examples, even when I was aware, I found it really insightful that you would put forward questions, particularly around trust and institutions, two things that interest me. 
and made me think differently. And I think as a writer, you should be happy about it. You know, you want the readers to change their mind to, uh, to consider differently. I came from the point of view that a lot of these institutions are not just in India, uh, but around the world are just changing at much, much slower pace, not just when it comes to technology, but when it comes to, you know, how uh, attitudes of millennials and Gen Zs are, you know, towards life at large. Uh, but in India, like data suggests that it's slightly different, but are we going to see a global convergence? Is India going to continue to be different? Uh, time will tell. But uh, uh, moving on. So you've you've written the book, uh, you've gotten a bunch of people uh, and you've quoted them. Um, were there some skeptics towards the idea? Did somebody discourage you or warn you about uh, possible use cases you should include? Um, when somebody concludes their book, I will often ask them, what were the hardest parts to leave out? So the same question to you. Got it. Um, so in terms of skeptics, I would categorize them into three opinion, uh, three, three camps. One camp was you're just too young to write this. Uh, these are serious topics. You should build up a body of work. Uh, you should do original research, publish papers, get peer reviews, and then perhaps much later in your life, publish a book like this. And, mm. you know, all respect to them. Uh, <laughs> um, the second was that this could potentially affect your career. Don't write a book on politics, given what we know about the state of the world, not just the state of India. Don't, I know things can get contentious very fast. Um, and the third group was, look, I don't specifically agree with some of the aspects and points that you mentioned in your book. The third one's obviously the easiest to deal with. You just kind of have, go out there and have the conversation. Uh, the first two were the far more challenging part, which was how do I convince someone that even as a young person, I have a voice and have a perspective and insights that might be useful. Um, and the second was, how do I write this in a way that is uh, that doesn't put people, including myself, at risk uh, of whatever, right? I mean, at the very least, social media backlash and uh, all the mental health issues that leads to. Um, so those are the more difficult parts for um, for for me to navigate. Um, the early feedback has been positive on both counts that people kind of really think about, hey, this is a fairly neutral account. And people think that, hey, look, even as a young person, you've written something that's of value to people who've been in the space for a very long time. So um, as any of us do, I think, as author writers do, I think it's been uh, a very, uh, it's been a tightrope to walk uh, for a fairly long time, but really excited that it's uh, finally the product of all of that will be out in the world soon for everyone to see. Yes, uh, can't wait for that. Um, this this whole ageism exists, like, you know, you're too young to write or you should take the time. And, and I think uh, uh, the point of view is absolutely valid for some people. But I feel that, you know, half the world is, uh, you know, less than 30 years of age. So unless until just sheer numbers, you need more millennials to actually uh, express their point of view on the subject. Tell me, Subhashish, um, the Indian left and the Indian right, what does that actually mean? And if you could change one thing about the way you know they, it manifests, what would that be? Got it. So I think these are obviously loosely defined terms in India. One of my American colleagues once, long time back in McKinley, had once said that everyone in India is on the left. <laughs> You're just different shades of left. Uh, but I think he was talking from the economic lens. From economically, mm. I think all political parties are usually some variant of the left. The last true right-wing party 
economically right-wing parties that we had was probably like the Swatantra parties, which was like many, many decades ago. I don't think even right now we have a feasible, truly right-wing economic party. Um, so, and this is different shades of left. Um, mm. Obviously, on the right, it's a lot more uh, because now right has been conflated with what is called nationalism, which is some people about conservatism, etc. And that's become kind of that melting point of what is socially the right. Uh, and now we have socially the left, which is which many people might call kind of the woke brigade and kind of um, liberals and whatnot, right? So um, I do think to some extent that uh, the problem is not so much that we don't agree on the basic things. For example, Indian foreign policy has always had a great deal of continuity when it comes, whether it's a BJP government or a Congress government. I think what we believe is a national interest as a country for our foreign policy has been fairly consistent. And to that extent, I do think there's a lot that we as Indians can agree to. Uh, and we don't do that uh, sufficiently because we're kind of caught up on those echo chambers that social media has created. So part of uh, writing this book was also to demonstrate to people that, look, no matter what your political leaning is, I think there's some commonsensical things uh, that mm. we as Indians can agree to about the role of government in our lives, because that, if we had a little less of that, uh, we could do a lot more in terms of who we are as people or a more kind of regulated aspect. Not, I'm not on less government liberal. Uh, it's more like a more structured government kind of uh, paradigm that I'm trying to share here. Yeah, and it comes through um, really effectively. I was having a conversation, you know, once briefly with uh, David Rubenstein from the Carlyle Group. And he was lamenting something very similar that uh, uh, once a month, he does host a private dinner for Congress, for congressmen and women from both sides of the aisle. And uh, these people often say it's one of the best parts of uh, their week because they can come and actually talk. Because publicly, the conversation, uh, Rubenstein was saying, has become hyper-polarized. So if you, you can either be in one camp or the other camp. Um, it seems like India is getting there, if not uh, already there. Uh, but uh, I sincerely hope that the future generations of politicians, if they are different, you know, allow room for uh, this kind of you know conversation across the aisle. Um, is there a way to do that? Is there a way that you found useful um, in any part of the world through any means where we can facilitate that? I found two things that are especially effective in that. And one, I learned, I was told a long time back by someone um, who I used to work closely with. So that in India, nobody minds what you say. They mind how you say it. <laughs> there are ways to deliver the same message uh, in a certain way that it actually gets through. So I think you have to be mindful of how you say things, which is why when I'm writing this, I'm trying to very consciously make sure I'm writing it in the, and I'm trying to keep my own politics out of it uh, when I'm mm. writing this book. Um, the second thing is sunlight or transparency. I think some of uh, some of the people or some of the authors that I have known personally have written about extremely far more difficult things, which is things like India's intelligence apparatus, India's surveillance apparatus, mm. etc. And yet they've been able to navigate that with India's intelligence agencies, which right now in the media obviously have a fairly bad reputation, uh, but they've been able to navigate that because they created sunlight, which is they created transparency. They went and said, look, I'm writing this book. Here are some of the things that I'm writing in this book. Uh, obviously I'm going ahead with it anyway, but if you have any inputs, I'm happy to listen. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we often forget that even behind these institutions that we might otherwise be scared of are regular people. 
Uh, and when you reach out to them people to people, I think you're able to navigate it a lot for, uh, easier. So I do think even in terms of this polarization, if these are the two things that we keep in mind, which is it's not so much what you say, it's how you say it. And secondly, most of these people as humans, they would want transparency. They would want you to be honest with them, et cetera. I do think that even the most difficult conversations can be had with the most difficult people if you have these two things in mind. Do you have thoughts on careers in policy and politics in relation with the book? Got it. So um, I do think at this point, given this large role that governments have in especially our economic lives, everyone needs to have some understanding of public policy and how governments work. So I do think it has become the basic uh, toolkit that any young, even a relatively young and certainly middle career professional needs to have. They need to be able to at least understand how governments work because whether you're working at a tech startup in, let's say, fintech, edtech, wherever else, uh, mm. whether you're working in uh, a bank or one of the traditional industries, whether you're working in government, obviously, academia, everywhere the government is a fairly large part determines a fairly large part of what you do like we for example i'm currently working at a fintech company um, and obviously what it really matters what are the rules and regulations that are driving fintech that it affects my everyday life and i think people need to be fairly fairly conscious of that um, you as an entrepreneur obviously need to be fairly conscious of that as well um, hmm. so i think a some basic level of public policy awareness and consciousness is absolutely bare minimum for success in today's corporate world and especially in, obviously in white collar jobs. Secondly, when you talk about a career specifically devoted to public policy, obviously it's become now a very, very large part, right? I mean, there are mm. top-notch VC funds who are now hiring public policy professionals to yeah. set up public policy divisions. So clearly even VCs who traditionally might have thought we are outside the laws of gravity of government in the country <laughs> are now saying that, look, we also need to uh, have this in our toolkit. And I think therefore the number of people who are uh, you know, legal professionals, public policy professionals, technologists in public policy, et cetera, is a sphere that is increasingly exploding. And I do expect that trend to continue for a while. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, even that, uh, and this is perhaps how we first got in touch and spoke about it was when we had started the YLT uh, Fellowship right. in association with the University of Chicago and IIC. Uh, and that was an acknowledgement of the fact that now this uh, piece is just kind of this, these set of jobs is just going to increase uh, a lot more. But I do think that uh, especially the kind of senior most people at organizations, uh, CEOs uh, need to have a lot more awareness of public policy than they needed maybe 20, 30 years ago. So um, I do think this is a this is an industry on the rise uh, or there's a set of careers on the rise and the quicker the younger people can wake up to the, it, the better it is for them. Yes, definitely. Um, has writing the book made you change your mind about something? It certainly taught me a lot of patience, <laughs> but <laughs> in terms of um, writing the book, what's been most illuminating is the power of networks. Both into, I've, I've always been a fairly introverted person, uh, and uh, I think all of us and in early stages of our career can get away with that. But I think we live now in an extremely hyper-connected world. Uh, we live in a world where there's so much interdependency with, uh, between all mm -hmm. of us. So both in the process of writing this book, when I had to, 
I read a certain thing and I would be curious, why did this person say that? My ability to hmm. reach out to them and understand why they said what they said or why they wrote what they wrote becomes a lot more important. But most, more importantly, even in the post-writing part of it, which was, I know that I could write this book because someone came and advised me and said, hey, this is the way you navigate the publishing process. Otherwise, what I would have probably done is I would have just emailed my manuscript to a bunch of publishers and I know and you know that it doesn't work. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that value of networks, which in a way organizations like Network Capital are doing, right, which is connecting folks, uh, organizing some of these uh, knowledge sharing sessions, etc. And I think my writing the process, the process of writing my book really taught me a lot more about the value of all of that. And now finally, also in the marketing phase, I think the people who supported me the most and really helped me get the word out people who've been in my shoes in the recent past uh, and they've experienced the joys and pains of uh, marketing a book and getting the word out there. They they're the people who've really turned up a, a lot more. So for an introverted person like me, the writing of this book, which one might imagine is a really insular process, has really made me, to contrary to that, value the the benefits that networks bring to to any professional's life including in endeavors like this uh, fascinating so um subhashish how can people you know give you feedback on the book how can they connect with you how do they reach you uh, so I'm fairly active on uh, uh, on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, which is my uh, preferred writing medium. Uh, and folks can just uh, write to me on any of these three, whichever they prefer. Awesome. Uh, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't about book, life, career, anything at large? I think in, in, <laughs> it would have been useful to uh it would, would have been useful to talk about um which you kind of broached the topic which is why i wrote the book but uh the book vis-a-vis -vis my plans for my future career uh, hmm. because one of the things again that uh, i would like your readers to or your sorry your viewers to take away is at some point i was in a dilemma whether i should even proceed with this book or not i was kind of midway through it uh, and there were questions about what is the impact this might have on my career, not just from the perspective, obviously, on the topic of the book, which some people were skeptical about, but also the time that it will consume in writing it and doing the market, et cetera. And a lot of people said, look, at this stage in your career, is this where you want to spend your time? And that's when I spoke to uh, one of my professional mentors. And what he told me was, look, these kind of passion projects come once in a lifetime. Hmm. And you have to go for it or you spend the rest of your life in regret. So... I do not expect, because I'm not an academic, because I'm not in public policy, I do not expect this book to really aid my profession very directly. But I think it's the joy of writing, it's the joy, it's the joy of working on something that means so much more that drove me to then take the decision to pursue this book. Um, much like my time at Oxford, uh, which I don't think professionally really changed the trajectory of my life I probably would have landed up in VC at some point anyway um, <laughs> but I think it's added to my life it's made my life much fuller in ways that cannot be quantified so again I you know uh, take people back to what you write a lot more about which is kind of the side hustle and all of that uh, and I think people really need to not be as uh, you know uh, 
not be as be as be as narrow minded when they think about their careers and actually let themselves go out there take us on something on the side that they really enjoy well thank you so much subhashish for joining us and for writing this book i thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, i'm very sure that all network capital uh, members will enjoy it look forward to meeting you very soon likewise thank you so much